0: Someday we're going to high-five coming up and down. That'd be cool. Yeah, left me hanging. Well, I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and we will come to the reading of God's word in a few minutes. The year was 1536, and a newly converted young man set out to write one of the most influential books that the Christian world has ever known. The title of that book is The Institutes of the Christian Religion. And John Calvin wasted no time when he began with this important book. Here's the first sentence. He says, True and solid wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God... And the knowledge of ourselves. And that, that should provide enough food for thought to, to get us thinking for many, many days, if not many years to come. What Calvin is addressing is, are you looking to be a man or a woman or a young man or a young woman of wisdom? If so, and I hope that describes you, you need to have a knowledge of God. You also need to have a knowledge of of yourself. I believe the opening lines of Calvin's Institutes opens up a, a massive window for each of us this morning. I want to ask are you looking for your place in this world? Are you looking to discover your purpose in this world or are you eager to learn about the kinds of pursuits that you should follow in this world? As we were worshiping this morning, and I, I couldn't help but look over here at the, the first couple of rows. I mean, just packed to the gills with young people. And as I was thanking God for these young people seated here, and it isn't an amazing thing. I mean, these kids could be at home. They could be watching football games. I mean, they could be sleeping in. But here they are at church. And as I was thanking God for them, my mind and my attention was drawn to Galen and Linda. And Galen and Linda are always smiling. I wish you, there they are. They're always smiling. They're great people. And I was thinking, wouldn't it be great? And won't it be great when these young people start to migrate to the third row and the fourth row and the fifth row? Now they're with the Van Werwens and Pat and Gary. And we just continue to develop a thirst for the word of God among young people. Why do I bring up young people? You say you do it almost every week, right? Well... When I ask these questions that explore where your heart is, what is my purpose in life? Where is my place in this world? What does God want me to do? My heart is drawn first to young people. But these are not questions that address only young people. These are questions that are important to all of us. And so do you desire to gain true and solid wisdom? Once again, according to Calvin, Calvin. You must get to know God and you must also get to know yourself. And so I want to walk you through a a short exercise where we can begin to do that this morning by way of introduction. First of all, getting to know God. You remember, this is about the pursuit of wisdom. We want to be a people of wisdom, and in order to get there, we need to get to know God. So it was A.W. Tozer, who in 1961 penned these words, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I believe that it is vitally important in the Christian life to constantly monitor our thoughts about God. I can tell you that as a pastor, I am always on the lookout for Good books about God that will help me to grow in my knowledge of God. But I am also acutely aware of bad books that denigrate the character of God, that deny the sovereignty of God, that cast doubt on who God is. And tragically, many of these books come from professing Christians. And so we need to grow in our knowledge of God. We need to subject our thoughts about God to the scriptures exclusively. For it is in the Word of God that the living God is revealed to us. And so the Bible, you see, becomes our benchmark. The Bible is our high water mark. The Bible is our standard for understanding who God is and what He is like. There are so many things I could share about this topic, but since this is only an introduction, I want to share two very important presuppositions about God that we need to take very, very seriously before we can dive into our passage this morning. Presupposition number one, God is a righteous judge. God is a righteous judge. Psalm chapter 7, verse 8, the Lord judges the peoples. I can almost hear the the postmodern mindset reverberating even in this congregation. It goes something like this God doesn't judge anyone. Or we shouldn't judge anyone. But the word of God says clearly that God judges the peoples. Psalm chapter 75. We give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks to your name. Your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds at the set time that I will appoint. I will judge with equity when the earth totters and all its inhabitants. It is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift your horn. Do not lift your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up. Listen, but it is God Who executes judgment, putting down one thing and lifting up another for in the hand of the Lord, there is a cup with foaming wine well mixed and he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs, but I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob, all the horns of the wicked I will cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Psalm chapter 94. O Lord, God of vengeance. O God of vengeance, shine forth. Rise up. O judge the earth and repay to the proud what they deserve. Then we turn our attention to the pages of the New Testament. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ. Who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom. And I want to have you turn with me. Hold your finger in in Romans chapter 2. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 19. Because in Revelation chapter 19. We have this stunning portrayal of the, the judgment and the justice of God. Look at Revelation chapter 19 beginning in verse 11. Then I saw, John says, a a heaven opened and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and he makes war. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I hope this morning that you are utterly convinced and reminded that God is indeed a righteous judge. That's presupposition number one to help us As we move into Romans chapter 2. But there's a second presupposition. And I'm going to have the young people do this with me. The rest of the older people don't need to do it. Because you'll think it's weird. But the young people think it's cool. I want you to buckle in with me. Will you buckle in? Like, thank you, Taryn. Click, click. I love it when people play along. Click, click. You're buckled in. Are you ready for a shocking statement? Olivia from Bolivia. Are you ready for a shocking statement? Okay. Shocking statement is this. God will never judge. An innocent person. He'll never judge an innocent person. Ever, ever, ever. And I want you to hold that thought because using Calvin's rationale, if we want to be a, a people of wisdom, we need to get to know God, the righteous judge, the God who will never judge an innocent person. But you remember there's a second thing that Calvin calls us to. We must get to know ourselves. And so we want to take a minute to get to know ourselves. And remember this apart from the grace of God, every human being is guilty. You remember, God will never judge an innocent person. Guess what? There are no innocent people. There are no innocent people. Apart from the grace of God, every human being is guilty. Listen to the words of Ezra, chapter 9. Saying, oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities, that is our sins, have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt is mounted to the heavens. You see, that's exactly what we find in our human situation. Our, our sin has engulfed us. Our guilt has, has risen higher than the heavens. Romans 3.23, we know, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We learn in Romans chapter 6, we'll get there someday. That the wages of sin is what? It's death. The wages of sin is death. And so with a renewed understanding, a very basic understanding of, number one, who God is. And number two, who we are. I want to have you look with me and stand to your feet as we read our passage this morning in Romans chapter 2. And we'll be reading verses 1 to 5. This is God's word. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? not knowing that God, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Let's pray. Father, these are sobering words, and we need your help this morning to unpack them, to understand them. Lord, help us to remember these principles that, You, God, are a God of judgment. You are the judge, and we recognize and learn from Revelation 19 that the final expression of your justice will be meted out as you send the Lord Jesus Christ as he judges the nations. Lord, help us to remember also the portrait of who we are, that apart from grace, we are guilty. We are hopeless. We were lost and without God in this world. And so would you help us as we explore these these verses I pray that you would convert the unconverted. I pray that you would be in the process of sanctifying your people. That you would uh, encourage this your people this morning as we study your word. In Jesus name I pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is the contours of creaturely rebellion. And I believe that as we walk through this passage we'll get a better understanding once again of who god is and who we are as the creature may i remind you as i have many many times before of the utter importance of distinguishing between the creator and the creature So many people in our culture have mixed the creature and the creator up. We have have inversed them. We have have fused them together. But nothing could be clearer in scripture. There is a creator. His name is God. And there is a creature. And that includes each one of us. Well, Paul begins right out of the chute with a word that should cause a, a, a red flag. And at the very least, a yellow flag to surface in our minds. If you look at. Verse 1 of chapter 2, do you see that first word? It's the word therefore. Why should that cause a, a red flag, a yellow flag to emerge in our minds? As, a, as Bible students, each of us should ask at this point, what's it? There we go. What's it there for? That's what we do when we see the word therefore. So as a result, this question leads us back into familiar territory. We want to go back to Romans chapter 1 and take a moment to review. Because in Romans chapter 1, especially beginning of verse 18, God reveals his wrath for ungodliness and unrighteousness and unbelief. It is in Romans chapter 1 that we learn something about the creature. Namely, that sinful creatures have failed to honor God. Sinful creatures have failed to give thanks to God. They have failed to think thoughts after God. Simply put, these fallen creatures do not have a heart for God. I'll put it this way. Instead of having a soft heart, the creature has a sinister heart. Instead of having a new heart, they have a nasty heart. Instead of having a believing heart, they have a boastful heart. Instead of having a repentant heart, each of these creatures has a recalcitrant heart. And instead of having a born-again heart, these creatures have a blasphemous heart. And it becomes very apparent as we read all the way to the end of chapter 1 who these sinful creatures are. Moreover, these sinful creatures have failed to worship God in the way that he demands. We looked at this in the men's class this morning, verses 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I shared with the men this morning in class that this was vividly displayed for the world to see just a few weeks ago at Union Seminary. That is Union Seminary, where the student body gathered together in chapel, they Assembled a whole series of plants in chapel and they confessed their sins to the plants. Once again, at Union Seminary, the student body gathered together in front of the plants. Maybe this will help, and they confess their sins. Thank you, Jessica. I, I see one. No, thank you. Confess their sins to the plants. At Union Seminary, I showed the article to my wife, and she said that, no, 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 no. I shared with the men that I had posted it on my website to alert the world. And I thought, well, what if it's not true? I better take it off. Then on further inspection, it truly did happen. Listen, that's exactly what Paul is referring to here, that we have, we have confused the creator with the creation. Let me read. Today in chapel, according to one student, we confessed to plants. Together, we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor the plants. Union tweeted on its official account, (laughs) as a challenge evidently to the world, what do you confess to the plants in your life? Are you kidding me? Have we lost our marbles? So rather than confess transgressions against an endangered grove or an old growth forest, the student-led September 17th service featured what appeared to be a collection of household plants and herbs. This is unbelievable. And that's one of the things that Paul addresses in Romans 1. Moreover, in verses 24 and 25, he says that sinful creatures engage in cosmic treason. They become corrupt. And so what does God do? He gives them up. He gives them over to their shameful lusts. Their passions have corrupted them. Their pursuits have become corrupted. At the end of Romans 1, we read this. Those who know God's righteous decree, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. And so the fallen creature knows that the consequence of practicing such things is deserving of the death penalty, but... They themselves not only promote this sinful lifestyle, they, according to Paul, practice it themselves. Romans 2, verse 1, therefore, what's it there for? That's what it's there for. Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man. And so what's happening in the opening verses of Romans 2 is that Paul puts the creature On high alert. It's as if he sounds the alarm. He issues a warning to the creature, a warning that will demonstrate the plight of every unconverted creature. And so, look with me, if you will, at the contours of creaturely rebellion. Paul essentially does this he he holds the creature accountable for their hypocrisy. There were no doubt people in Paul's day in the first century who, who read the words in Romans 1, 18 to 32, who agreed with Paul. These are unconverted people who read what Paul said in Romans 1, 18 to 32, what we just summarized a moment ago. And they would stand in horror with Paul at the cosmic, atreason, cosmic treason that he addresses there. You see, Jews we were absolutely convinced that God would judge the cosmic treason of the Gentiles and also that the Jews, because they were God's people, would escape that divine judgment. And I think that every one of us can relate to this. It is not unusual to consider yourself to be a good person. Have you ever known a good person? The typical good person you You pay your taxes. You keep the traffic laws, usually. You are kind to your neighbors. You give Christmas presents when it's expected of you, and you extend kindness to other people. You uphold the laws, and you contribute to your community. You are, in fact, a a quote-unquote good person. But what I've found, and I think you have found as well, it is very common For those good people to look down on the other people. And that's exactly what's happening in Romans chapter 2. We have a group of upright Jews. One writer refers to them as the moralists. Pointing the judgmental finger at the Gentiles or those nasty immoral pagans. But Paul levels the playing field in Romans chapter 2 and he shows that the Jews are just as guilty. They are just as culpable as the Gentiles in Romans 1, 18 to 32. So would you look with me at the contours of creaturely rebellion? These are marks that are possessed by every unconverted person, first of all. Notice with me that they are condemned. They are condemned. That is, they pass judgment on other people. It's fascinating to me that the word judge or some variation of judgment occurs no less than seven times in Romans chapter 2 verses 1 to 5. That comes from the Greek word uh, krino or "krenos," which means to evaluate something or someone. It means to pass judgment. It means to make a legal decision, but it also means to condemn. And that's what these Jewish individuals are doing in Romans 2. They are looking at what Paul wrote in Romans 1, 18 to 32, and they're passing judgment on these people. These moralists stand in judgment of the gross immorality that Paul condemns in Romans 1, 18 to 32. But in doing so, and this is what's crucial to understand, they condemn themselves. I remember as a boy, you know, when you point the finger at someone, what's your mom always say to you? It's like, I'm uncomfortable doing it to you right now. It's like, Merle, it's like, I'm I'm pointing right at you. And my mom would say, whenever you point to someone, you have three fingers pointing back at you. You know, it took me a few years to figure that one out. I'm like, three fingers? Like? Right? Right here. But that's what the Jews are doing. They're they're passing judgment on these people. Number two, in so doing, they pass judgment on themselves. Read verses 1 to 3 with me. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of God? They are not only in a state of perpetually judging. And by the way, the Greeks suggest that written in the present tense. They are perpetually judging the pagan Gentiles. They are judging each other, but they also participate in a perpetual cycle of sin themselves, which is also indicated by the Greek text. And so as a, as a Jewish individual, I look at what Paul says in Romans 1, 18 to 32. I cast judgment on those people, and I do it perpetually. And as I do it perpetually, I also condemn myself because I commit the very same sins. Number three. They underestimate the standard of God's righteousness. That is what these Jewish individuals are doing. And number four, conversely, they overestimate the gravity and the depth of their own sin. Or rather, underestimate the gravity and the depth of their own sin. One writer says it like this. The secret hope of the hypocrite is that God will somehow judge him By a standard lower than perfect truth and righteousness. And I think every hypocrite can understand that. Every hypocrite can relate to that. And here's the bottom line in verses 1 to 3. These individuals stand condemned. There's a second quality of these individuals that emerges in verse 4. Look at it with me. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and the forbearance and patience? Not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. That is, these are individuals who are calculating. They are calculating. Paul says it like this. He says they presume on God's grace. Very few people i found are using the King James anymore. Those of you that still have the King James, you'll see this translation in verse 4. The, the Greek word translated presume is translated to Despise. I don't know about you, but presume, you presume on something. And it, it doesn't seem like that big of a deal, right? But now insert the word despise. Or do you despise the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience? The New American Standard translates, the Greek word translated presume, to think lightly of. Do you think lightly of God's kindness and His forbearance and His patience. The NIV translates the same term as to show contempt for. And so what's happening here? These individuals, the condemned, are despising God's kindness. As I read that verse, uh, a passage in Ephesians popped into my mind. It's in Ephesians 2 7, where Paul is is articulating the beauty of the gospel and how he shed his grace on his people that says in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness, that's the same word, toward us in Christ Jesus. What are these individuals engaged in here? They despise the kindness of God. Have you ever given someone a gift? It's usually a child, usually a young child. You give the gift to a child and they look at you like, that's the lamest gift I've ever seen. Have you ever had that happen to you? It doesn't matter what the gift is. You could give a candy bar to a four-year-old and have the four-year-old be like, "Uh, hey, daddy-o, where's the cash, baby? Right? That's called despising a gift. And even though it was a simple candy bar, if you're the one who's the, the giver of the gift and someone despises that gift, like, Oh, take the the knife out of my stomach. That was horrible. That was terrible. That's what these individuals are doing in Romans chapter 2. They think lightly of the good gifts of God. They despise God's kindness. They despise God's forbearance. Namely, the judgment that he withholds. And they despise God's patience. Some of you remember the way my late grandfather used to describe the Greek word makrothumia, patience. It's long suffering. You remember that? What do these individuals, these corrupt individuals do? They say, God, I despise your long suffering. This makes sin look so grave and so ugly. And we need to be alerted to that. This is exactly what we do as well when we presume on God's grace. I'll put it this way. We forget that every breath we take is sheer grace. For whatever reason this morning, I have not struggled with asthma for about two years, and I'm having a bit of a, a breathing moment this morning. Wow, I, I am so grateful for the days where I can... There's, I, can, I can feel it, right? But I'm so grateful for the breath that God gives. Every sip of cold water is a, a sheer grace gift from God. Every time we watch a, a beautiful sunset, every time we watch a, an incredible play on the football field, how's that for theological sharpness? It's a gift of God. But what do we do? We take his kindness and his forbearance and his patience, all of which Paul says are designed to lead us to repentance. We presume upon God's grace. We look down upon his good gifts. We take them lightly. We show contempt on these things. There's a final mark of creaturely rebellion that the Apostle Paul notes, namely callousness. Difficult to say verse 5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you were storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What does a callous heart look like? Paul says it's very clear. It's very plain. This is a hard heart that comes from a Greek word that is translated a heart that is stubborn, a heart that has no feeling. This is not only a hard heart. This heart is an impenitent heart. It's an impenitent heart. The fascinating thing is there's an important Greek word in the New Testament. It's the word metanoia. Some of you are familiar with it. The word metanoia is translated as repentance. Here in Romans chapter 2, verse 5, the word is ah metanoia. Ah metanoia. That is the unconverted person with the callous heart. They have a heart that is impenitent, characterized by a refusal to abandon self or any kind of pagan idolatry, a person who is not inclined to trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's not unusual for me to talk to a young person about the rebelliousness in his or her heart, especially that is directed toward mom and dad. As I was preparing this sermon, a an individual popped into my mind. This was about a junior in high school and the, they no longer uh, attend church here, but the, maybe that's why they don't attend church because I kind of got into the mug of this young man. And I said, young man, you are rebellious. And his father was kind of given the yeah. Yeah. Preach it. Pastor Dave, right? This young man didn't appreciate it. I could tell I wasn't getting through to him. Well, I had a piece of Play-Doh. It had been on my desk for a couple of years. And we all know what happens to Play-Doh when you don't put the lid on the can. It becomes hard and, 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 and brittle and stony. And I grabbed that piece of Play-Doh and I gave it to my friend. And I said, young man, evidently I'm not getting through to you. But I want to show you what your heart is like right now. And I made him put it in his hand. And I said, your heart is like that piece of crusty Play-Doh. And I want you to take this piece of Play-Doh home. And I want you to put it on your dresser. And I want you to remember that until God transforms your heart, that's what you're like. You're a rebel to your parents and you're a rebel to God. And that's exactly what we do. Every time our heart grows hard, we're like that piece of play that dried out piece of play We choose to have a hardened heart for the things of God, the blessing of God is withdrawn from our lives. We need to have soft hearts for the living God. And so as I considered Paul's indictment of his fellow Jews Jews in Romans chapter 2, I was struck with something. I must say that this passage had quite an effect on me. I had never studied this passage in depth before until I prepared for this message. His indictment, I learned, is true not only of Jews, but of every one of us. Here's the way I I, I discovered something interesting. You may look with chagrin, and indeed you likely do, with the the rampant idolatry and paganism and homosexuality that Paul condemns in Romans 1, 18 to 32. Yet, apart from grace, it is not only the Jews who are guilty. I'm guilty. And you're guilty. See, we were born into this world condemned. Condemned. By nature, we are calculating, and apart from grace, our hearts are callous. They're like that crusty piece of Plato. As we were worshiping this morning, I had a a very interesting thought. It's a thought that goes like this. Preaching is one of the most challenging things one could ever engage in. You ever thought of it like that? Because as I look at the sea of faces, there are several kind of people. Some of you are utterly convinced. If I asked you to raise your hand, are you among the convinced? Lots of you would raise your hand. And so my job as your pastor is to preach to the convinced. But I'm also called to preach to the curious. Those who may not be converted, but you're curious. And then there are a few critics. Some of you are critics. And everything that I've said thus far, you're picking it apart. And you want to research it. You want to examine it. And, and you, want to, you want to prove the Bible wrong. But there are some of you who are condemned. As this passage describes. Is you are utterly unconverted. You're not a believer. And my job is to. To the best of my ability. Reach out to the convinced. And the curious. And the critics. And also the condemned. And it's a challenging job indeed. And so I'll put it this way. If you are a Christian. If you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to do this. And that is to marvel at the depth, the profound depth of your salvation. And to glorify God who saved you from your sins. Marvel at the depth of what you have been delivered from. And reflect on the the amazing grace that you have received rejoice because now you are truly free rejoice because now you are truly forgiven God has separated your sins as far as the east is from the west he's buried them in the sea of forgetfulness he's hidden them behind his back and he remembers your sins no more but for those of you who stand among the curious or the critics or the condemned if you are not yet a follower of Jesus My challenge to you is this, and that is to acknowledge the hopelessness of your creaturely rebellion. This morning, my task is to help you to come face to face with the gravity and the weightiness and the ugliness of your sin. And once you acknowledge the hopelessness of your creaturely rebellion, you need to understand that there are consequences to your creaturely creaturely rebellion. It's like, I want to share the gospel with you through the back door. Here are the consequences of your creaturely rebellion. It's found in verse 5. Paul says, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. You are storing up wrath for yourself. That that little phrase, storing up, simply means to lay up, to, to treasure up. And I found that word in Matthew chapter 6, verse 20, where Jesus says something very positive. He says, lay up for yourself, you remember, treasures in heaven where, moth, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And so instead of storing up treasures in heaven, The unconverted person stores up something else. Paul says they store up wrath. That is anger or punishment on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I must say that the day of judgment is coming. We looked at that earlier in Revelation chapter 19. And it is precisely at this point, especially in our generation, that I hear the complaints I hear the objections. I hear people tell me I'm sick and tired of hearing about the wrath of God. Here are some of the things I've heard over the years. God would never judge anyone. I have heard people say, I can't worship a God who judges people. I have heard people say, I can only worship a God of love. Now, when you hear those things, or if you are numbered among the critics who say those things, remember the words of A.W. Tozer. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And so we must always turn to the scripture to learn what God is like. And I want to do that as we close and have you turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus chapter 34, and it's, it's so wonderful to hear the turning of the pages, to be a people of the book, Exodus 34 verses 5 to 7 cuts through every objection I have ever heard concerning the judgment of God, the wrath of God, and the punishment that God holds to every un- unconverted person. Look at Exodus 34 verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him. That is Moses. He stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Yahweh. And Yahweh passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgressions and sins. Stop there. Can't you hear The reply of the typical person in our culture. There it is. God is a God of love. God is a God of mercy. He is a God of forgiveness. But we need to read to the end of verse 7. But who will by no means clear the guilty. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children. And the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. My friends, this is the consequence of creaturely rebellion. May you leave this morning and remember this fundamental reality that God will by no means (coughs) clear the guilty. Excuse me. We have witnessed this morning the contours of creaturely rebellion. We have seen that apart from grace, every creature stands condemned. Apart from grace, every creature is calculating, and apart from grace, every creature is callous. Therefore, apart from grace, the creature stands guilty. The book of Romans is quick to show that we are fallen, that we are sinners, that we are guilty apart from grace. But we will also learn in days to come that the book of Romans is, is quick to reveal the remedy. The remedy, rather. And the remedy is found in Christ alone. You, look at, you can look at various world religions and see what the remedy is that they offer. And it involves finances. It involves works-based righteousness. It involves church attendance. It involves Signing something on the dotted line. It involves anything that smacks of workspace righteousness. And here's what we learn in scripture. That the remedy for creaturely rebellion is Christ alone. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians 15. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That's exactly what Emma Jardinsky was affirming this morning in the waters of baptism. That I believe Jesus died on the cross. I believe he was buried. I believe that three days later he raised from the grave and was triumphant over sin. And so please remember this morning as we close that the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ is our only means of coming home to God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is our only hope from being delivered from the wrath of God. The gospel of Jesus is our only hope in receiving forgiveness. Now, the contours of contours of creature, creaturely rebellion remind followers of Christ of their past. And I trust that it causes you this morning as we close and sing these final two songs that you will worship and glorify God for the salvation of that is yours in the Lord Jesus Christ may the contours of creaturely rebellion also reveal the depth of sin that every unbeliever needs to be aware of. And so I urge you, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ to trust the Lord Jesus Christ, may you leave the sanctuary free from the the penalty of sin. May you leave the sanctuary free from the power of sin and may each one of us Depart in peace, knowing that Jesus Christ has vanquished sin and he has called us home to himself. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that is ours in Christ. Thank you for this passage that highlights the, the rebellion of a creature apart from grace. And there is no one who is excluded this morning. We have all been there. Those of us who have been rescued from your wrath we remember what it was like to be numbered among the condemned. We remember what it was like to be numbered among the calculating, to be numbered among the callous. Our hearts were stone cold until your Holy Spirit did a mighty work of grace and turned our heart of stone into a heart of flesh and gave us the ability to believe the gospel, and to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, I pray for unconverted people, for critics, for those who stand in condemnation for those who are even curious lord i pray that you would draw them to yourselves that you would show them the mighty gospel you'd show them the beauty of the gospel and that they would turn to christ and be saved in jesus name amen